Hey, my name is Aileen Burns, and together with Yuan Lund, I'm co-director at the IMA. Um, I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land in which we meet this evening and by paying my respect to elders past and present. Tonight, Emily Pethick, who's director of the showroom in London, will be giving a talk as a part of our year-long series, The Artist As. The series invites artists, writers, and curators to speak about the ways in which artists adopt roles in addition to that of the artist to pursue a project, a position, a politics, or a practice. For any given project, an artist may act as architect, ethnographer, archivist, producer, as a curator, as an activist, a choreographer, and so on. The artist as also recognizes that many artists come to their practice as experts in other fields. They bring with them specialist knowledge that informs and shapes their work. In her talk, Emily will focus on a number of projects that, were, that have been undertaken with artists at the showroom that involve collaboration. With a they, um, these collaborations often take place with communities that live and have a stake in the neighborhood around the gallery, but sometimes they also involve collaboration within the institution itself. Emily has established a sensitive and embedded approach to commissioning, especially at the showroom, and we've had the great privilege of seeing that close up, especially through the recent project we undertook together, um, which was commissioning Rana Hamaday's The Sleepwalkers, which just closed about 10 days ago here at the IMA. So as I mentioned, Emily's director at the showroom. She's also previously been director at Casco in Utrecht and was curator at Cubit in London as well. I'd like to conclude by extending our most sincere thanks to the Cure Foundation who've supported Emily's trip. I'd also like to thank Tara McDowell and the curatorial practice at Monash Art and Design and Architecture Program, who are our partners in the Artist As. And finally, Arts Queensland and the Australia Council, who are our ongoing supporters, who really make everything that happens at the IMA possible. So thanks to them, and please join me in welcoming Emily. Ah, thank you very much. Um, I'd like to begin by thanking Eileen Johan, IMA, for inviting me here and for being amazing hosts over the entire visit from Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane. Um, it's been a really amazing trip. Um, and also Keir Foundation, who supported the, the visit. Um, so I'm going to talk through um, a number of projects that we produced at the showroom. I have put quite a lot of them in, so I hope it's not going to be too uh, heavy. I'll whiz through if it's going too slowly. Um, but to, give, to start with a little bit of background to the showroom, I took over in 2008, um, and we moved to this building here in 2009. And before, the showroom has a 33-year history, um, and it's had quite a strong emphasis on producing, commissioning and producing artists' work. But when we moved to this um, space, uh, we moved to a very different area of London, so it was in the East End um, for about 25 years, um, where it was quite nestled within a, a, a kind of, well, it was one of the early independent spaces um, and part, you know, quite embedded in a, a landscape that was um, 
in the east end of London, there's a lot of artists uh, living and a lot of independent spaces, and now a lot of gal commercial galleries. And so when I moved back to London after being in Utrecht for three years, it felt like a, kind of a, a, the showroom had to move spaces and it felt somehow important to find a new relevance for the showroom and to take it out of quite a comfortable situation where there was a natural audience and to somehow I created lots of difficulties for myself and the team by putting it somewhere where there's no uh, not much um, well there's no sort of artist community near the showroom it's just off the Edgware Road um, but it's actually a very interesting area of London and, and the neighborhood's called Church Street and it's a neighborhood which is situated in between lots of very affluent, wealthy areas of London, such as, I don't know how familiar people are with London, but it's quite central, it's sort of north, just off, um, like if you would go to the south, you'd get to sort of um, uh, Marylebone, Paddington to the west, Regent's Park to the east, and St John's Wood to the north. And Church Street in itself was quite heavily bombed in the Second World War, and so has a lot of new um, social housing and quite different demographics to the surrounding areas. So we were, um, originally we found this space through, um, it was kind of mentioned at a neighborhood meeting that uh, the showroom needed a new space, and there was quite a lot of interest in that meeting, um, which was convened around a kind of regeneration process. Um, and the architect, Terry Farrell, um, invited the showroom to take over this building that he'd just leased. It took about a year to negotiate the lease, but through that time, we started to really start to build um, relationships locally. And so when we came uh, to actually finally take over the lease of the building and open it, we'd, we had quite a good starting point to, to work um, and build on these relationships and local knowledge that we'd started to, to kind of build. Um, and so we set up a program called Communal Knowledge, which is run by Louise Shelley, my colleague. Um, and that's been uh, a, a program through which we've commissioned um, very regularly a kind of ongoing uh, program which uh, sort of uh, invites artists to collaborate with local residents and groups. And that program started to f sort of feed into the wider program in quite a fluid way. And so I'm going to show um, a number of projects that have been commissioned in different ways. Um, some of these have that kind of local dimension, and it's also important to say that not all of our program has that. Uh, so we also commissioned things like Rana, which uh, Rana Hamaday, who people might hear might have seen, which has you know doesn't s speak to the local context except for the fact that it is a very Arabic area actually, the the showrooms neighbourhood. Um, and I'll, yeah, I'll show one at the end, but I thought sh to maybe show a bit more of that side of our program because it's the kind of thing you can't really see from afar. And also to kind of expand the frame a bit to show how these projects come out, what they come out of, and what happens after them as well, to sort of show how, uh, yeah, what is produced beyond a singular kind of outcome of an exhibition. Because I think some of the things that I started to see in the program is about how a lot of things are built on processes and relationships that we have already developed, what we invite artists into, and also they have kind of outcomes that you don't often uh, anticipate. So that's the kind of background to what I'm going to speak about. And I'm going to start actually with a film which will be presented <laughs> in the exhibition here. 
just by chance, actually, more incidentally, that my visit coincides with this being pre presented here, and it's a film by a Dutch artist, Wendelin van Oldenburg. I'm just going to show a clip, and then I'll explain a bit about the film once you've seen the clip, uh, if I can. They feel me, they feel me, they feel me, they feel me. And there I was seen. They made up a story from all the fragments. And then I was charged. Seen as charged. Now you feel me, you feel me, you feel me. And then you'll make up your story. And then I'll be what? Visible? And there was no reaction. Like, there was no real reaction. There was punishment. There was no reform, there was no dialogue, there was just punishment. I think they say London's got the most CCTV in the world or something like that. Growing up around here was like, I don't know, it was cool. But knowing that that building was there, you have to think twice about the things you do. It's kind of like puts fear into people, you know? People would always walk around it and be careful cutting through. Even if they wasn't doing any criminal activity, they will just always be careful around it. Because it's the law. It's already political. It is already yeah. political at the moment it activates the kids. I agree with that, yeah. but perhaps okay. if I were to phrase it myself, I would maybe think on it slightly differently and I would be like, it's a political act that happens within the self. So it's self-realisation that is definitely a political act, but in itself, it exists within the self. And to apply that outside of the self, then is a different process. We can't just sing our way to a revolution. There might be music to inspire the revolution or music that's a soundtrack to a revolution, but music on its own, I believe it's got a different power. It works on your emotions and it goes in a different place. So if we are holding on to Freire's, um, you know, vision of political pedagogy, and which is one which is not authoritarian, which doesn't believe in any, that anyone has any answers for anything, etc. If we're holding on to it, so, you know, we may be able to also perhaps find ways of doing, doing the political work different than what we did in the 80s and the 90s. This is how it was installed at the showroom. You can see the difference in how. <laughs> and those were just brief clips, like excerpts. Um, so the background to this um, work is that um, we, uh, through our kind of ongoing kind of work in the neighborhood, we came uh, into contact with a local, uh, they call themselves grime artists, <laughs> uh, called Reve two, called, one called Reveal, um, Merak, Golestan, and one called uh, Als, who's here, Dean. Um, in fact, Merak introduced us to uh, Als. Um, and we started talking about kind of issues that are affecting young people in the neighborhood. Um, Dean was one of 16 young people who was convicted after an incident connected with the 
London riots in 2011 and served a sentence. And during that time, he, he wrote um, a, a song called Conspiracy. And the song was about the way in which his conviction came about, which was through CCTV footage, where he wasn't um, actually seen uh, committing a crime, but he was there at the scene of this incident. And so a number of, yeah, the 16 young people um, were sentenced. And um, the, in general, the way in which the kind of London riots were kind of reported on in the press, there was not really much dialogue um, that was coming from the, the side of the young people. Um, and there was a kind of frustration around that which comes through his song. And actually our original conversation with Merak, um, who introduced us to Dean, was about how there were a lot of young people in our neighborhood who were kind of making music, but weren't feeling like they had any sort of outlets for that. They couldn't get their music onto online channels because they couldn't make good videos and stuff. And so actually our initial um, starting point was to make a video with Al's um, of his song. And at that, in the uh, very early stages, we also introduced Wendelin into the dialogue. Um, and we started, and the, and the reason why um, I'd worked with Wendelin in the past in the Netherlands, um, we'd produced another work together, and Wendelin's methodology is to produce a film through um, conversation. And she'd made a number of works where she brought different people into contact, and that uh, those conversations produce a script that's basically filmed through a shoot, and that becomes the, you know, the script of the work. Um, and it sort of felt like uh, there was a limit to where we could go with the conversation that we were having with these young people, and we wanted to introduce an artist to kind of open this up and also kind of challenge, you know, create a kind of more challenging situation to have that conversation. And so we introduced Wendelin very early on, and she was in dialogue around the first film, but also we worked towards this, uh, this piece, which was filmed in uh, over two days. Um, and at the same time, I also uh, introduced Wendelin to Denise Ferreira da Silva, who we are very fortunate to have in Brisbane on Saturday, I think. Um, and Denise, at the time, was working at Queen Mary University. She was an ethics professor, and now she's in Vancouver. And she'd written about riots and issues around race, coming from, uh, she comes from Brazil originally. Um, and her, her kind of, her language is very, um, it's, it's difficult. I find her text challenging to read. Um, but I, I, I knew that Wendeline would, um, Wendelin's worked a lot in Brazil, and it felt like a really uh, natural relationship to forge. At the same time, I was also interested in other things that Denise does, and we've continued to work with her beyond this film on a project called Poetical Readings. And so um, Wendelin brought Denise into conversation with these young men and also introduced Vandalay Moira da Silva, who's um, training in London as a psychotherapist. And um, Louise Shelley, who runs the communal knowledge program at the showroom, was also in the film. And so there was a, the film kind of produced a, a dialogue across these two days that wasn't centered on the case of Alboy. Uh, sorry, he was called Alboy to begin with, he changed to Al's. Wasn't, it wasn't centered on it, it kind of moves around it, it circles around it, and it um, 
raises lots of other things. For example, Merak is interested in um, hip hop pedagogy. He's studying ethnomusicology at SOAS. And so there's a kind of, um, there's a kind of looseness to the work which allows a lot of things to kind of surface. And I think what was interesting for us was the way in which it developed our relationships with all of the, the, the kind of cast of the film. For example, with Denise, um, we're now developing the further stage of a project that we started last summer, uh, this summer, on um, uh, researching kind of different healing methods in our neighborhood. With uh, Vandalay Moira, we started talking with a, a children's charity about a placement in, in a school um, as a psychotherapist. And with Merak, we started talking about a program of hip hop pedagogy. And so there's a kind of, I thought what was interesting about this work was it's it kind of had multiple outcomes and it resonated in different ways for different people as well. For, for the musicians, it kind of has a, a different uh, resonance. Um, and so that, to me, was an, yeah, an example of how the program at the showroom kind of functions sometimes, is that, um, that we tend to kind of work with continuities and building relationships and, and seeing where those lead. Um, since you can see the film in the next, uh, on Saturday, from Saturday onwards, I won't go on too long about it. I shall move on to something else. Um, so one of our early projects was with Lawrence Abu Hamdan. Um, whose work I seem to, it was in, I've seen, it's mentioned a lot since I've been here, so he's obviously uh, had an impact in Australia as well. Um, so we started with Lawrence. This was one of the first, in fact, the first uh, project we worked on with uh, in the communal knowledge program. And we made contact with our neighboring youth center. Um, and we set uh, Lawrence up with a group of 14-year-old uh, girls who were quite bored on Saturdays and, um, Lawrence, at the time, he's just actually completing his PhD in the Center for Research Architecture at Goldsmiths, and his um, research has been around the politics of, uh, sort of contemporary politics of listening. Um, and at this time, he was kind of looking at the courtroom um, and the kind of sonic dimensions of the courtroom and the role of listening in kind of legal um, frameworks. But he's, he tested out... Um, in a way, he, he used the sessions with the girls to kind of test out different kind of um, premises within his research, which ended up being very successful, actually. Like, they enjoyed it a lot, and he also got a lot out of it. This is talking about the microphone and the role in the courtroom. Uh, and it sort of worked so well that we decided to continue the, the kind of work with Lawrence, and he moved on to make this audio documentary um, audio essay called The Freedom of Speech Itself. And that kind of shifted into a, um, a research around uh, the role of voice analysis in immigration cases. And um, he, he came across a case of uh, a Palestinian asylum seeker who was, um, had his voice tested in his asylum case. And he was told that he wasn't Palestinian. He was of another nationality. I can't remember if it's Syrian or from Jordan. But anyway, it was based on the pronunciation of his word tomato. Um, and so Lawrence kind of used this case to kind of open up the kind of complexities of how um, you know, borders are controlled in immigration cases and to sort of break open this, um, this kind of practice of voice analysis. And what was interesting was that later on he um, got asked to be a witness in a court case around the practice, and so was 
the the work itself or you know his his kind of research was taken into a into a kind of legal framework where he was asked to kind of uh, respond to um, the the practice and that to me was interesting in the way in which I think that project was interesting for me and why I bring it into as an example for the artist as is because it started with a very local uh, collaboration with a group of young girls, quite kind of, in a way, incongruous to have him collaborating with those girls. Um, and then moved into a piece of work that he made, and then it sort of moved from there into a kind of another framework, another sphere where it resonated. Um, so another project early on, I think this was in 2010, uh, we worked with Cine Nova, and we still are working with Cine Nova. Um, on a number of things, which I'll explain. But Sininova is a women's film distributor, which was founded um, in the early 90s, but it was founded through a merger of two women's, other women's film distributed circles and Cinema of Women. And um, they were both set up at a time when women's film was very um, underrepresented. Women filmmakers were in the UK, and so, um, Cinema of Women had a very kind of global perspective, um, much more sort of documentary work and circles was very sort of practice orientated and more kind of coming from a experimental film. And so it has this incredible collection, but at the time when we started this project, which had a kind of two year lead in, partly because the showroom was, you know, trying to figure out its space and all this sort of stuff. But actually what was interesting about the process of this show was that there was a very extended kind of dialogue that, um, was developed with a group of Cinenova volunteers called the Cinenova Working Group, which is a group of artists and writers and curators who all kind of felt a kind of urgency around Cinenova at that moment that um, it doesn't have any funding. And it was kind of very difficult to access the films because it was run on volunteer labor. So the actual exhibition was called Reproductive Labor. And we we, we kind of made a very ambitious proposal for a funding application that we didn't get, and we sort of found out quite soon in advance of the show. And so in the end, we did what we decided was to just bring Cine Nova to the showroom, put it in the space, so the whole contents, everything that Cine Nova owned came to the showroom, and the kind of daily work of Cine Nova was carried out throughout the exhibition, and people could just come in and watch films. People could just show films if they wanted. They were on monitors, but you could kind of screen them. There was a lot of paper materials that no one had really looked at for a long time, so we could sort of see what Cine Nova was. And we did a crowdfunding campaign for a computer so that Cine Nova could also begin to digitize its collection. And so the collection is still held at the showroom now, so people can book in and come and see the films. And we do um, monthly film screenings with younger filmmakers, sort of picking works from the collection and showing their work and dialogue with that. And so what was interesting to me about this was not only the way that the kind of focus of the exhibition traversed very different um, matters relating to very practical things about how Cine Nova can continue, also the question about why are women only film distributor now, and also kind of the, the, the way of exhibiting and making Cine Nova available, um, and the question of labor that came through. Um, but it also produced a really um, 
well, it really energized the organization and it produced a community, uh, sort of made visible a kind of community around Sininova of people who really believed in it and thought it was important, who came to the show. It was a very sort of popular exhibition. It was kind of constantly busy and there were a lot of impromptu things that kind of happened through it. And so there was a kind of looseness to the way in which the exhibition uh, was used as a site to kind of produce a new... Um, uh, a new kind of lease of life around Sininova, which was very kind of energizing for all of us. Um, and alongside it, we were working at the time with Petra Bauer, who's a Swedish artist, and she came to London for a year um, with a grant to research um, political filmmaking collectives um, from the kind of 70s, 80s period in Britain. She, also, she looked a lot at the Sininova collection and actually, the Sydney Nova collection ranges from like early suffragette films up until the kind of, I guess, early 90s or sort of mid 90s. Um, and so Petra, um, who's a filmmaker, wanted to further her research through making a film herself, but not a film that would be about uh, uh, political filmmaking, but actually to collaborate and to sort of ask some of these questions through a film. Um, and she ended up working with Southall Black Sisters, which is a, an organization um, sat in Southall, which I think has, I'm not sure how old they now, maybe they have a kind of 30 year history. Um, and they are very, very kind of committed towards the cases of women within the Southall community, but also more broadly, um, which has a very South Asian uh, population. And so their work has really um, been, they've been very active on many levels. And what was I found interesting about Southall Black Sisters, amongst other things, was the way in which their work traverses between very kind of embedded local work where they help women who uh, are suffering either, I mean, the, I guess the dominant cases they have are cases of um, domestic violence or um, kind of immigration issues, issues around arranged marriages, etc. And women can, any woman can come to Southall Black Sisters and receive help. Um, but they also are very active in campaigning and also working on a kind of political level um, in terms of advocating for um, women's rights. Um, and so these are some of the, this is a still from the film where um, you see some of their banners. The film basically was filmed in 10 days in the house that they work in in Southall, and it has no kind of voiceover, and it's very much focused on their labor. And also what resonates in the film is all the things that kind of took place within that week, which kind of tell, tell the, uh, the viewer about the work of Southall Black Sisters. And so there's a lot of think, parts where there's meetings that are filmed, where they're introducing themselves. And I'll show a tiny uh, a bit of a clip, which is at the end of the film, during, during that week, it was fortunate that uh, um, Sue O'Sullivan, who's the founder of Spare Rib, um, had a, 70, a huge 70th birthday party, and she did it in aid of Southall Black Sisters, so it was a kind of fundraiser for Southall Black Sisters. And I'll just show a, a small clip of um, a speech by Pragna Patel, um, who's one of the Southall Black Sisters. I think she's the director, um, just to give a feel for the film and for them. She asked me to say something about Southall Black Sisters in the context of the theme, a party of resistance. 
I think we can all drink to that. Southall Black Sisters comes out of an honorable tradition that is very much steeped in struggle, not submission. Resistance lies at the core of everything that we do. It is the heartbeat of the, our organization. It is perpetual and it forms the basis of all our work. This week actually was a very interesting week, start of the week, because it started with a story in The Guardian about virginity tests against Asian women carried out under the Labour government in the late 1970s as part of its immigration policy and practice. It has come to light that more than 80 South Asian women were made to undergo a virginity test to show that they were bona fide brides. It's an old story, but what is new is that it disclosed documentation which showed that the practice was actually more widespread than first thought. And it was essentially a practice about using women as sexual bodies to construct a racist immigration system. This got me thinking about Southall Black Sisters, established since 1979, around the same time that the protests against the practice were carrying on. In fact, we were part of the demonstrations and protests against the testing, which was eventually banned. The story serves as a very good example of the kind of resistance that we have always sought to engage in. It's relevant because it captures the interface of racism and gendered violence, the two strands of our struggles that have always been fought simultaneously, regardless of the changing political, social, and economic landscapes in Britain in the last 30 years or so. And I have to say that since the journey, we began the journey in 1979, the struggle has become much more difficult. And even if we've had victories along the way, the rights of many black and minority women continue to be violated in fundamental ways in their families, in their communities, and by the state. In the process, we've had to defend the very language and principles of equality and human rights and feminism as both the state and reactionary forces in our communities seek to use them and to subvert them to shore up power and privilege over those who are vulnerable. But I suppose if someone had asked us 20 years ago, what kind of issues do you think you will be challenging in 30 years' time? Sorry, 30 years ago. What kind of issues would you be challenging, do you think, in 30 years' time? I doubt that we would have included in that list a struggle for a secular public culture. Our struggle to create secular communities is vital. We owe it to... I'll stop there. And if you want to know about... If you want to see the end of that speech, the work is on um, Vimeo. So I can give anyone who wants it a link. Um, so I think just to um, um, reflect on... Uh, the work with Southall Black Sisters, what for me was really, and Sininova, I think there was an interesting thing that I recognized in those collaborations um, around how organiza small organizations can, can support one another. So how the showroom, I mean, the showroom is quite sort of precarious in itself, but we have a kind of infrastructure that we could lend to Sininova and continue to do so. Um, 
Sam Thorpe Black Sisters at the time was interesting because they were going through very same kind of struggles around funding that we were going through. And Petra was quite conscious in making that film that it would be useful for them um, and that they could use it in a, in a way that was different to how Petra would present it, let's say, in the space of art or in film festivals and things. Um, so I think, uh, well, I would, I'm going to go on to talk about another organization that we've worked with very regularly now over the last six years, which um, is a collaboration that's very much led by Louise Shelley, um, uh, who is now on the board of, uh, well, has been for a while, actually, the Board of Justice for Domestic Workers. Um, so we met them through a project, The Grand Domestic Revolution, that we um, also collaborated with Aileen and Johan on, um, and Casco in Utrecht, who initiated it. Um, and that was a, a project that I'm not going to go into it because it's quite a big project, but they basically um, they were collaborating uh, with a domestic workers group in Utrecht in the Netherlands. And when we brought the project to the UK, it just happened that uh, Justice for Domestic Workers had approached the Tate about collaborating with them. They meet every Sunday and they have kind of one day a month for um, culture. Uh, to like to do something kind of culture related, and so um, we initially um, collaborated with them on a project around um, parenting and childcare, and then then we started. Uh, then we invited them into the framework of the Grand Domestic Revolution, and um, they did a kind of spray cleaning action. This is a isotype that Casco commissioned Andrea Siegman to make, um, and you can kind of see. Uh, text that went with it, which we translated. Um, and these were kind of spray cleaned in, in public spaces around, well, not very far away from the showroom because that machine was so difficult to maneuver. <laughs> um, and actually, the, this, the, the isotype, this one is still there. Um, but basically, Justice for Domestic Workers have been working. Um, I guess the primary um, concern is around visa regulations in the UK. Um, which are tied to employers. So if a domestic worker comes to the UK, um, they cannot leave the employment of the person that brought them uh, uh, without being uh, going illegal, um, which creates a lot of very uh, difficult and uh, uh, you know situations where um, people can't escape uh, abusive uh, situations. And so um, we started collaborating with them in ways that were kind of trying to build a not only a sort of dialogue and discourse around this, but also a kind of aesthetic language. Um, this was actually realized by a group called Ask, Acti Shona Kunsten, which is a group that Casco formed around the project, the Grand Domestic Revolution. And it's a group of artists and other cultural workers who collaborate with the one in the Netherlands. And they've actually been over a couple of times to collaborate with this group as well. Um, this is a project they were doing with Worker also through the Grand Domestic... It kind of actually led on from the Grand Domestic Revolution project. Um, they're a Dutch uh, um, initiative, and this project was around uh, representation <coughs> of labour. And so they started working with um, uh, the domestic workers to kind of embed um, documentation within their, um, within their kind of daily work. Um, and then they did these kind of image critique and kind of um, poster uh, collaborations in the space. Um, and here's another image linked to another one, which I'll talk about later. Um, and then uh, we um, commissioned 
Kira Phillips, who's an artist who's based in Glasgow. Um, and Kira had done a lot of exhibitions where she'd kind of um, set up kind of impromptu screen printing, uh, live kind of screen printing in the gallery alongside installations. And we were quite um, keen to kind of foreground that part of Kira's work, um, the kind of print, like the sort of live printing and invited her to do an exhibition that would have the workshop as a kind of central component that would be present throughout the exhibition. And in relation to that, Kira's always collaborated a lot with other artists. And so we also, I mean, we're looking also at the kind of history in London of radical um, print workshops, which were very kind of collaborative, community-based initiatives. And so we started looking at that history and decided to invite some of the groups that we worked with, namely uh, Justice for Domestic Workers. And we also been working very regularly with the Women's Refuge in the neighborhood. And then she also invited other artists on different days to kind of work with her and the work sort of built up in the space. But I think the most kind of um, dynamic collaboration was between her and uh, Justice for Domestic Workers. And they started developing these, um, first of all, they developed an alphabet together, um, which they used to start to kind of produce banners. And then they, start, they produced a, a few banners, which they've used quite a lot in their campaigns. Um, and then what was nice was that Kira got nominated for the Turner Prize for that show. Um, and so their work um, entered into the exhibition at the Tate. You can see the letters. Um, and through that, um, there was also a bit of press, uh, which also kind of foregrounded their work. Um, and so I thought it was a nice... In you know, like way the the way in which the the presence of those um, domestic workers kind of moved through the exhibition and into other arenas was kind of interesting to me, um, and we continue to kind of work with them quite regularly. We host a lot of birthday parties and different things and meetings and um, so jumping on to something a little different. Um, as an, another example of how we work. Um, we've collaborated a lot with the Otlith Group, which is a London-based artist initiative. Um, and they have a, we actually, for the opening of the showroom in 2009, our first show was with Otlith Group, um, which was there, we co-produced their film Otlith III, um, the third of a trilogy. Um, and it was part of an exhibition called A Long Time Between Sons. Um, and then after that, actually, what was nice about that show was um, we had a lot of very like intensive kind of events that were um, in the space of the exhibition. Um, and that became a kind of format that the showroom sort of continued. We've continued to work with the with Otlith Group on events. And we've commissioned three other exhibitions with them, co-commissioned, of other people's work. So we've co-produced two sound works. One with Mark Fisher and Justin Barton, which was a kind of audio essay, um, and a piece with Graham Thompson and Sylvia Maglioni, which was another sound piece that was um, working with an unmade film that um, Felix Guattari wrote a script for about an alien. And we've also done a lot of like different discussions and events with the Otlet Group at the moment. Kojo Eshin, who's one half, is doing a series of lectures around um, Afrofutures. 
And so it's a very, like, in a way, like the other relationships which I've tried to kind of show, it's also one of the ongoing ones that has a kind of quite active following. So anyway, uh, the Otterleth group were really keen to bring Chimarenga to London. They're a South African um, Cape Town-based um, organization who have multiple kind of projects that they're realizing. So it's always difficult to explain the complexity of their work, but they produced The Chronic, which is a quarterly gazette dedicated to um, Pan-African culture and politics. And when uh, they also have a Pan-African space station, which is a radio station online. Um, they produce different kind of readers, like ones around a series around African cities. They um, And they have a literary uh, magazine called Chimarenga. Um, anyway, they're very active and dynamic. Um, and when when uh, Kojo and I visited um, Cape Town, they just produced this um, issue of the Chronic, which was a kind of mapping issue. Um, so I just showing a couple of those maps to give you a feel. Um, And these are kind of um, basically different ways of mapping the kind of African continent through various kind of filters and, and lenses as a way to kind of understand, I guess, the contemporary kind of dynamics and politics of the continent. Um, so they'd also done some exhibitions um, and some interventions into public libraries. So there's two library projects that they'd done, one in um, the Cape Town Library, which I've just got a couple of images on, you can see here and here. And the Cape Town one, and then one in San Francisco Public Library. So this one, they basically, well, with both, they basically kind of overlaid an alternative kind of um, mapping sort of system into the, integrated into the library so that you could kind of follow different routes that would lead around different kind of areas of interest and sort of threads of their research through the library, kind of identifying different books and tagging them. Um, and we would have loved to have done something like this, but we didn't have the resources in San Francisco. They had researchers, work, whole team of researchers working for a few months to, to do this. Um, all the quotes are kind of taped to the floor. Um, and so instead, uh, we formed a, the project it was called the Chimarenga Library. And part of the idea was about how do you kind of produce a, a kind of library in the space at the showroom? And so we had the similar kind of routes, which had different kind of pathways going through the exhibition, following different kind of strands of their of their research, which I guess there are different trajectories. There's there's a lot of work they've done around different kind of African avant-garde literary figures, such as um, the kind of key figures for this exhibition were Dambutso Marichera, an African writer, and Bessie Head. Um, and then they've also been doing a lot of research into Festac 77, which is one of a series of Pan-African um, festivals. Um, and they were also looking into um, the photographer George Hallett, who photographed a lot of the African writers. They, he did the covers of um, the African Writers series, which was a series of um, books produced by Heinemann in sort of, gosh, I can't remember the, the era. It went sort of maybe from the 50s onwards. Um, and then we had this wall drawing with um, kind of different headlines from the chronic that kind of move across different issues. So in a way, I think the exhibition started to become a way to kind of spatialize um, 
Chimarenga's work that you could kind of um, expand beyond the kind of page of the chronic or what the chronic can contain and find these different ways of reading across different, uh, the different uh, um, strands of what they do. And I think, um, so part of, the, part of the process of the exhibition um, was, well, there were two aspects. We did a five-day radio broadcast through the Pan-African Space Station, which you can sort of see here. But also, Chimarenga gave us a list of about 200 objects that they wanted to find. Um, and because we didn't have a, a much of a budget, and they actually didn't want us to go out and buy these things, they kind of wanted them to be found. So we ended up having a very lengthy process. They actually brought maybe half of these things themselves from South Africa um, in various suitcases and things. But um, we also started to really uh, search for these things through our own network, so through the network of the showroom, the Otlith group, and Chimarenga. And so we started asking around. And what was interesting about the process was that well, we couldn't find a lot of the stuff, but other things came forward. And so that started to kind of alter their map. And so they shaped the map of the space and all the kind of different lines of their research in relation to what we could find. But it was also interesting to see what you couldn't find. But also things started to emerge through the process of the show. So people come to the show and see that there were a load of books by Dan Butzo and Marichera, and they bring their own one and put it on the shelf. And so it started to have this very... Um, somehow like a, a, a kind of, um, it became a, a really good way to embed Chimaranga in London and to activate a kind of community of interest around it. Um, and the radio station basically went for five days. Um, we broadcast from 2 till 8 p.m. And that was split into 45-minute slots. So um, various people invited, and we had um, kind of residence, residencies. So different people were programming different parts of the broadcast. And that also created a kind of diversity of voices that came through that. So it ranged from a, a young collective of artists and writers and thinkers who are in their kind of 20s called Sorry You Feel Uncomfortable, who are really um, trying to address, I guess, the position main, uh, of kind of young people of color in, in, in the UK at the moment, also very much from a queer perspective. Um, so they programmed one slot, then the Otolith programmed a slot, Chimarenga programmed things. Um, and so there was a kind of, um, there were a lot of music people that came in, um, there were people who were interested in African culture and politics who spoke. Um, and so there was a interesting kind of like, uh, also like the, the kind of form of the exhibition and the way in which we kind of drew people into into kind of contact with it was kind of also the radio station was a very central part of that. Also, again, like the Cine Nova exhibition, started to make a kind of community, uh, or in a, in a kind of very, in a very expanded sense, in a very disparate sense, but make something visible in London about the, and, and the people that came who are kind of followers of Chimarenga was also quite particular kind of um, scene that emerged around the showroom, which is, here you can see. Uh, that's uh, Kojo Eshen Antone Ajabi, who's the founder of Chimaringa. Um, so I've got two more things. I'll just race through because I realize I've talked already quite a lot. Um, 
But this one is also a kind of mapping exercise. So I thought it's interesting in relation not only to Chimringa, but the, the subject of the talk. Um, so Ricardo Basbam is a Brazilian artist who's um, been working with the shape, which he calls NBP, New Base Basis of Personality. Um, he's been working with it for about maybe 20 years, <laughs> and he's used it in many different permutations. So he's made giant containers out of the steel kind of vessels out of this, um, which was circulated um, as part of one of the documenters. I think it was Documenter 12. And people could use them in different ways and document their use. And I worked on this, um, the same project with him in Utrecht. It's called Reprojecting. And basically, we put the shape on the map, and it determined different sites for intervention. And so we, did, we tried this in Utrecht, where we did a very different scale. We kind of put it over the city, and the shape took us to the outskirts, kind of places that you would never go to um, if you didn't have a, a specific reason. But here, we used it as a way to kind of traverse the kind of boundaries of the neighborhood. Um, so we kind of placed it in dialogue with Ricardo. And what you can see is um, the neighborhood that we work in is kind of like here. And so we kind of used the shape to kind of traverse out of the neighborhood into different sort of surrounding areas in order to kind of kind of produce different kinds of tensions in places that we might go. And I'll just show uh, this is the kind of method. So um, I'll just read out bits of this. So it's projected over the map of northwest London, or the area around the showroom, configuring a proposal of intervention. The points where the angles and inner circle touch the map are selected as locations for activities, actions, interventions, lectures, events, etc. Uh, the selected locations function as spaces to develop proposals that act as interfaces between contemporary practices, the public or private areas, and the individuals and groups and communities that work there. Attention is expected to be produced, one of reciprocal conversation, negotiation, and provocation. So with the shape, we programmed a different kind of cl different collaboration on each site between an artist and a different uh, local not, not necessarily all local, but a different kind of group, or there was some kind of different action that took place, and it became a kind of program that was realized over, I think it was two weeks. And Ricardo was present for all of these, but actually in, t in kind, of d d kind of coming up with the project, um, Ricardo was in Brazil, and so we were very active in terms of like forging the relationships around this. Um, which was kind of an interesting project. Louise, in particular, was very active. And so there are some projects like this one, uh, which was a collaboration with a local youth club with a artist, Anton Katz, that is actually still going. And it just, uh, he started a TV station. But that was initiated through this project. So I think what was interesting about the, the project was it was quite generative in terms of starting a lot of, like testing a lot of different things out and starting new relationships, but these somehow fell into a program together that had a very, um, like, uh, was produced through a dialogue with Ricardo. So a lot of the sort of concepts and uh, the way in which he thinks were kind of infusing this in an interesting way, for me, um, at least. Um, there's an artist collective called Seymour Arts, who are all homeless or ex-homeless, that collaborated on a kind of derive where they remapped the space. I didn't have an image of it, unfortunately, but you can see they did a kind of led a kind of public walk. Um, 
and then Paul Ellerman, um, who's an artist based in London, worked with a youth group where they, an opera singer, trained them to kind of mimic sirens in public spaces. Um, so there were a lot of things that involved kind of walks. Um, Justice for Domestic Workers collaborated with Ask, and they had a writing workshop with a Korean writer who's very much written about kind of labor movements. Um, and then they did a public protest on a site which was quite close, it had fallen on the map quite close to where a lot of them kind of work. And so they did this kind of picnic. And then there was a collective conversation which was basically produced through whoever, a lot of people, um, people kind of signed up to be part of this process where we sat and wrote together a script over the course of a week each morning. And that involved showroom staff members, Ricardo and his partner, who's an artist, Daniela Matos, um, a local resident, a couple of PhD students, Mao Malona, who's an anthropologist. And so I think what was interesting to me about the project and it culminated in this performance was there was a kind of diversity um, that somehow held together through this shape and through some of the concepts that Ricardo works with, which are coming out of, in a way, thinking through um, kind of Brazilian kind of modernism and artists such as Ligia Clark, he takes a lot from questions, um, concepts that he works with, things like the organic line and this idea of a shape that's produced through the kind of meeting of two, two surfaces. There was a lot of kind of very abstract thinking that was kind of m sort of permeated the project um, that somehow enabled it to work on different levels of both being very much a kind of artist's practice that was had a kind of abstract and aesthetic kind of approach and the kind of different um, in a way interests and agendas of all those who were collaborating that came through the process and the shape um, and that could have some kind of way of sitting alongside one another in a quite unhierarchical way um, that interested me in, in the way of how you can sort of make things visible and connect them without trying to overlay a singular logic. Um, it's a complicated project to explain, I have to say. <laughs> the nuances, you know, you could talk, just do a whole talk on that one. Uh, and then finally, I thought I should throw in an Australian artist, <laughs> Jerry Bibby, um, but also to show a, a project that didn't have a kind of local uh, well, it did it very local, in fact, because he kind of looked at the showroom. And on an early visit, um, he oh, was in a different one. he um, identified or he recognized that there was a big sort of heating issue at the showroom. It was like freezing cold and the heating had kind of broken down. And we kept talking about this plumber, Colin, who's a very nice guy that we all really liked. Um, and so Jerry eventually decided he wanted to meet the plumber and to kind of investigate why the show, you know, when the showroom has so much warmth, he was kind of interested in affect and the way in which the showroom works in this very kind of warm, kind of generous way. Um, but that the, the we kind of had these kind of, uh, you know, infrastructural kind of issues. Um, and so he kind of also um, was thinking about the heating system as well and the way it flows through the building and the, the kind of, um, wanted to somehow enter into enter into the showroom in a kind of more embedded position as an artist than maybe other artists had, had tried in the past. And so he met with our plumber and they he basic, who basically 
uh, told him that you couldn't really fix the showroom's heating problem uh, without installing double glazing upstairs because there's huge window. I don't think I've shown an image of the upstairs space, but it has very big windows and they're just, you know, let all the heat out. And so this began a kind of process of Jerry kind of thinking through different kinds of, um, yeah, ideas and kind of narratives around the, the, the kind of how to engage with this and what he could do. And in the end, actually, we didn't manage to uh, either raise the funds or sort of, you know, get as far as planning double glazing, but he basically, for the exhibition, cut the glass which you see here, it's a bit difficult to see, but basically the, he got the glass cut that could fit the windows and he created this installation. And so the exhibition was, I liked it because it was kind of in a, it was sort of mid process in a way. He'd started to think through a lot of these things and was, we were still kind of researching what was possible. And so the exhibition sort of came at a, a kind of midpoint. And in a way, like some of the other things I've shown, they kind of like the exhibition is not necessarily the end of the project. And he also removed a radiator upstairs and put it in the exhibition. And we had a kind of deal with him that if he would solve the heating problem, he could keep this radiator. <laughs> Unfortunately, when the winter came and the, the problem hadn't been solved, we had to put it back because uh, we didn't want Jerry to kind of like deplete the, the warmth of the space. And at the time, he was also writing a book, which I noticed you've got some copies of, The Drumhead, which Vivian was uh, very involved in as editor and commissioner of that book. Um, and so he was in London a lot during the process of the exhibition, and he sort of came in and wrote. And you know, there was a sort of parallel process of a, a novel that was being produced alongside. Um, and so I'll end there. But I thought to show that one as an example of where you know the showroom itself becomes a kind of um, part of a artist's kind of um, process. Yeah, I'll finish there. about it like that. I think maybe what's, I think often the showroom, we're the ones who kind of hold the relationships. I think that's what I, you know, like when I'm showing the sort of continuities and the way these projects work, like in a way, and I think that there are, you know, like, I think it's important to also say that a lot of this work, it's like, we're not trying to solve problems. Um, and highlighting them. yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, so there's a side of it where sometimes there's not necessarily a goal, but actually with that one there was a kind of. I think part of it is about learning um, ourselves, because that one came out of a kind of quite um, like the the whole period of work, especially the work we've done with young people. We always kind of 
get exposed to these te tensions in the neighborhood, particularly around kind of, I didn't really explain it, but there's a quite strong local gang culture. And even a, c a few weeks ago when we had the, w the Fourth Feathers TV project continuing and th these young people came in and started talking about what they face um, in relation to the kind of um, kind of oppression actually that comes from having to have you know not not being able to choose about whether you know like how that kind of gang culture impacts on on their lives and I mean it's pretty dark actually some of the stuff that comes through and so early on we started to see that young people didn't come to sometimes to the showroom if we're having a workshop or something because we're in a different postcode and the gangs are very kind of, um, they're quite organized around postcodes, at least at that time, it's kind of shifting a bit now. But um, so we really wanted to learn about that and also to learn about the kind of um, situation that led into, you know, those local riots and the convictions and things like that. Um, so I think quite early on we started to see our role as the ones that needed to be educated rather than a more conventional kind of institutional approach where an institution would see itself as being the place that educates uh, this sort of edification you know like it's so i think that was quite an important shift in our thinking and i guess when we invite an artist in we open up a lot of this knowledge to them so quite often actually the sites in wendelin's film there's three sites as a police station which is a, which is a high um, like it's it's used as a place to detain terror suspects it has a very high security kind of and we weren't actually allowed like when we originally wanted to film in there but we weren't allowed so we filmed outside um, and then there's a subway um, which is now quite sort of not very used but it's where Joe Strummer used to busk and then there's a music recording studio um, where um, quite a lot of famous bands recorded in the 80s and it has this kind of interesting history like Duran Duran, you know, like used to, and Culture Club, all these 80s bands. And so part of the film, like the film, the, the first day was in the subway and kind of on the outside of the police station. And the second day was in the music studio and actually Wendelin invited the two musicians to bring songs that they could record as part of the process and those songs are the music's featured in the film, but they also got to kind of have it professionally kind of recorded in the studio. Um, I'm realizing how much I didn't say now. <laughs> um, so that's another case of like different outcomes, you know, coming that they could take. Although in a funny way, they weren't that they weren't so wowed out about that opportunity because they kind of <laughs> record them anyway on their own sort of thing. But um, in terms of Wendelin's role, I think it's more that like an artist can, yeah, I'm not sure I would see it as a journalistic, because I think, I think what I like about the way Wendelin works is that um, she come, like she's sort of, she can, she comes with the kind of idea of what she wants to, what she wants to kind of get out of the film or what she thinks, you know, where the sort of you know, what the film can do in terms of what can surface through it. But she creates this quite open framework where others um, can have a voice, you know, can, can speak. And, you know, there's, a, there's an interesting kind of um, 
And it happened again with another film that I worked on with her, Marit's script um, in The Hague, um, where we shot a film in the Marit's house, which is, he was the governor of northeast Brazil. And there's a kind of Dutch, um, there's a colonial history that the Netherlands is very kind of reticent about, you know, bringing into, you know, into its education. You know, like there's, it's quite sort of unknown. Um, and she convened a group there and, what was interesting was that the conversation kind of started before the film shoot, all these people who didn't know each other, but just started talking. And then it kind of continued through the shoot, it continued backstage, outside, in the evening. So it kind of went beyond the shoot. And the same thing happened here, it was slightly different, that the first day was a bit kind of, it was more awkward. There wasn't such a, you know, like the relationships hadn't been built. But by the time you see the kind of last bit of the clip I showed, there was this kind of very intense kind of conversation that was produced through that time spent together. And I think Wendelin has a skill of bringing people into contact that might not ordinarily meet and forging a conversation that wouldn't necessarily happen in any other place. And so the link between someone like Denise and someone like Merak and you know Dean, who wouldn't come into contact with someone like her, you know, produces this kind of um, dialogue that, you know, I think is interesting on, you know, both sides. And, and it's kind of mirrored in the showroom's work as well, isn't it? In that bringing, bringing, bringing people, people into contact, yeah. And yeah. being kind of open to the conversations that might generate and, and mm. kind of being generous in that spending the time with mm. people to allow things. To I mean, there were, it was a difficult one to produce because we were also even the week of the shoot when everything was sort of set up, you know, there were sort of uncertainties around whether some of the characters were actually going to turn up, you know, so it wasn't like a sort of, you know, in a way I show the rosy picture, but, uh, you know, there are sort of embedded kind of, uh, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of risk in some of these things um, in terms of setting up a shoot around, you know, also, you know, when Petra was working with South or Black Sisters, they were a bit kind of, always really busy and concentrated on, you know, their main goals. And they were a bit like, oh, God, Petra. Here's Petra again. <laughs> and then actually when they saw the film, they were just amazed because they didn't realize the sort of scale that Petra was working on and that they were going to look so amazing and sound so intelligent. And, you know, like, <laughs> but actually, it'd be interesting to hear from Vivian about, like, um, what you, you know, in terms of situating Wendelin's film here, like how that kind of, because I read it in this very localized kind of way, and so it's quite interesting for me to see it situated in another. Yeah. Um, it's, um, it's a piece that I've seen now um, five times in five really different oh, places, I think. And it's here, sort of as part of this bigger project where Wendelin and I are developing a, a large body of new work that will end up in Jerusalem. And particularly, all things going to plan within the Shafat refugee camp. Mm -hmm. And so we screened it there as part of a process exactly of sort of getting to know community leaders within that space, uh, within the children's center. And it set off a really, I mean, the space is an incredibly politically tense, exhausted, um, urbanized, but massively isolated space. 
And the first time I went to the camp, I ended up in this recording studio of a local hip hop artist. And this unbelievable conversation kind of bubbled up between this young hip hop artist and this quite senior painter. Mm -hmm. um, and they were obviously on very different generational positions of a, of a struggle. And I, I wrote to Wendelin that evening, I'm like, I felt like I was in a Wendelin Van Alden film today. <laughs> like in the studio, you have to come to So you were showing it without Wendelin. And so, yeah. so we went back and we showed it there, and it sparked this incredible conversation about the quality of the political act, but also of whether, um, what, its, what its relevance was there. And there was um, some people who were always defended at, being, at, at having been shown um, an experience of racial profiling in London as though, mm -hmm. um, that confronted their attachment to a Palestinian struggle, uh, that itself provoked an incredibly strong questioning of what has become a fairly rigid and difficult orthodoxy also around that struggle. And it's something that's at the basis of frontier imaginaries, is the, what is, what is to be, um, what conversations are possible mm. in sort of transitioning um, uh, political formations across contexts. So I'm sort of yet to see what it does here. Yeah. It does ask really important questions about the way that um, uh, racial injustice has transitioned from a 1970s through neoliberalization and into mm -hmm. the global era. Yeah. I mean, that's sort of how I understand what the essence mm -hmm. of that work is. And of course, that has we've seen that in Australia in very profound ways, yeah. although different ways. And so I'm interested to see what happens with it. With Wendelin's new work, the, the basis is of a question of um, the racial politics of housing, which also has resonance here as well. Yeah. So, I don't know, that's sort of an off-the-cuff. Yeah, I know, I'm looking forward to seeing it here. Yeah. Are there other questions? Oh yeah, that's a good example, I can tell you. <laughs> so we tried with um, Chris Atman. Actually, we had, uh, so we have this three-year collaboration with two other organizations called Chisholm Hill Gallery and Studio Voltaire. You might be familiar with them. And uh, the project, I mean, it's a bit of a long story, but the project was initiated through us being quite strategic about going for some funding. Um, the Arts Council of England was basically trying to stimulate organizations to kind of shift into the new mode of economy, arts economy, i.e. generating money from kind of private sources. And so they kind of gave the, they, they kind of had this program called Catalyst, which is sort of still going now, but um, where organizations, they were basically encouraging us to kind of uh, adapt, you know, develop our skills, fundraising skills. And so we proposed um, a program called How to Work Together, which was the idea was that we'd do it for three years, and each year we'd commission a new um, work, and together we'd fundraise for those and kind of bring in new kind of funders. And the idea is that you could kind of, together, we'd form a kind of bigger platform that we could reach towards, you know, 
sources of funding that we can ordinarily um, attain. And we had this online think tank, which is various research we've kind of commissioned around it. But anyway, the, is it the first year? Actually, yeah, Jerry was actually commissioned in that program, but Jerry's commission came on the back of one that completely failed, um, which was an artist called Chris Evans um, had had this, uh, wanted to collaborate with the Morningstar newspaper um, to redesign, like to, to develop a new design proposal for the Morning Star, which is basically the sort of longest and and kind of, I think it's the only kind of uh, communist kind of newspaper uh, in the UK now, and had a kind of dwindling readership. And Chris had kind of read some kind of article about that and was kind of keen to sort of see whether like he could bring together a kind of a kind of team that would kind of work with them in a collaborative way to kind of develop a new proposal which they could either take on or disregard. But anyway, um, we had some really good meetings with the Morning Star and there was really like a kind of general, like they were very open to it because it was in a way like they could take it or leave it. It involved quite a kind of, a, a, a kind of, um, consultation process with um, we involving Amal Malona, who's an anthropologist who's worked in, uh, he's, he's kind of done a lot of like field work in kind of, um, in he did a, a long kind of field work in Sheffield in a kind of steel works and has kind of relationships with some of the unions and you know, like he was one of the people that brokered the kind of relationship with Morningstar and there were various others involved, but anyway, it was all kind of scheduled to kind of, uh, we had a workshop sort of scheduled and then the Morning Star suddenly pulled out because they'd kind of looked up the project online and they'd seen that the project was supported by Bloomberg um, and they immediately thought this is gonna alienate our readership and we can't have any kind of contact with that, you know, source of money like that. But there was no dialogue, so they just completely like, they were in a really busy period, but they just completely dropped dropped the project at a point when we'd actually set up, you know, like people to come over from abroad and the whole thing was sort of scheduled. Um, and it was in a way a shame that they didn't enter into the dialogue around around that. Um, but it was also understandable and we were a bit naive to not really, I mean, the funny thing is I thought Bloomberg wouldn't want to work with the Morning Star, but I hadn't really thought that the Morning Star <laughs> might... <re> <laughs> But of course, I should, we should have mentioned it earlier on, but that was, a, in a way, we were quite naive and, um, you know, like, I think you, yeah, it's funny that we didn't uh, think about it earlier. But anyway, there's a, there's a kind of piece on the think tank, uh, the How to Work Together site, which is a kind of um, text that came out of that process. Um, yeah. I'm just curious, in that kind of scenario, did you manage to feed it back to Catalyst? Fact, like yeah, no, we've written some quite, we we commissioned quite a critical article on Catalyst, um, which is on the website, Andrea Phillips wrote. We also, um, Andrea Phillips, before she wrote that article, did quite in-depth uh, interviews with the three directors, where we all kind of talk about, you know, issues around this kind of new economy and the kind of... It's the, we talk, all talk quite openly, actually, about kind of organisational politics. Um, and so part of... And then uh, the last round of commissions, uh, Chisholm Hill um, has 
an exhibition um, with with Maria Eichhorn, who proposed to close the space for the five weeks of the exhibition and that all the staff have a holiday. So that prompted another discussion around, you know, economy. They had a conference on the kind of opening and closing day of the show <laughs> where um, a lot of these things were discussed. So we have been quite kind of openly kind of aiming to raise these issues and discuss them. But I think there's... Um, it's interesting that there aren't that many who are prepared to step out and critique this kind of economy. Um, so, yeah. those ones we play quite a strong mediating role um, and I think the important thing which is not just for the projects from made with visitors but also with other artists is that I think quite often these projects will develop or generate new relationships or they'll be based on ones we already hold but what we've been what I realize has been successful um, is that we hold the relationships like the organization um, and we really take responsibility. And so that seems to work in the sense that you can introduce artists into those and they can help us to develop them further. But the, the, the people that we work with are kind of comfortable with us. And so that gives a sort of possibility where they trust us to introduce in, you know, other people. Um, and I think, because I'm also critical of that artist diving in, you know, and like, you know, doing something and then exiting. And so that's been something that I found can work. But actually, quite often, we've been lucky that the artists have been able to spend quite a lot of time. And we don't have a kind of residency program. It's usually like artists sort of hopping around in various kind of house sitting for my neighbor and then staying with a friend. And then, like, <laughs> so it's quite kind of. Like the 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 thing, like in a way, we're very lucky that um, we never really ask for it. But a lot of the artists we work with really want to spend time, and that's what makes these projects work. Because you can't really do them with a kind of cursory visit. But actually, what was interesting with Ricardo was that you know he wasn't present and he didn't like we 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 produced that program in dialogue with him. But actually, what I liked about like, in a way, it was sort of a co-production. And there were, in a way, moments in the project where different things came to the foreground and things receded. So there were some times when Ricardo was very present. I didn't show the whole, you know, program, but... Um, and his 
ideas and thinking was very present and there were times when that was really in the background and the same way there was times in the showroom had a strong presence and not or the shape or particular artist or group and so there were these sort of shifting kind of um, uh, resonances um, and I think that can be the same with other things as well that you know like different things come to the foreground or a central at sometimes and others not but I think yeah and working with um, I think yeah we're, it's something we're quite careful about anyway that you don't just dive someone in and then you know like <laughs> Yeah. <laughs>